Are you tired of using subpar fertilizer that don't give your crops the boost they need? Look no further than Irish Shite, the all-natural and sustainable solution for your farm. Made from the finest blend of Irish animal waste, Irish Shite provides essential nutrients for your crops to thrive. And it's not just good for your crops, it's also good for your skin. With Irish Shite, you'll look 10 years younger. So why settle for less? Choose Irish Shite. It's made right here in Ireland. And be sure to tell your friends and fellow farmers about the power of Irish manure. This message has been brought to you by the Irish Shite Association, the natural choice for a sustainable farm. Kevin. Well, did you ever encounter magic in real life? Yeah. In what way? It was March 3rd, 2021. You said, I'll count you down. Five, four, three. And I went, wait, five? <laughs> and I knew right then we had the magic. It's a deep cut. No, you know what? Genuinely, I thought when we riffed on The Princess Bride, I knew that the podcast was going to be magic. What podcast? <laughs> That's what our listeners say. Yeah. Let's get into it, Kevin. Wait, we didn't get a big laugh there. Usually we need a big laugh to go into the segue. Okay, let me just give you one. <laughs> Roll it. The best bit. I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You are stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host, Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special, and I am joined once again by my co-host and writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of television, Kevin Lehan. Kevin Lehan, how are you? Hello, Will. I'm looking forward to this episode because I'm full of whimsy. You're so, yeah, I would say you're two things. You are magical and you're real, Kevin. So um, you've got all the elements we need for a magical realism episode. That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> zero. No, it doesn't. Absolutely zero. You're so stoic looking. No, no. I was hoping to get a laugh out of you. I only do this podcast to make you laugh. Oh, well, you know. You- <laughs> <laughs> You can cut that in somewhere. I'll cut it in, yeah, no problem. Kevin, we're here to talk with your yes. to talk about your favorite topic, magical realism. Okay, I gotta come clean now and say to you that I don't know what constitutes magical realism. Mm. I can give you what my definition of it is, and then you can school me on Great. it. Great. Give me your definition and I'll give you what Wikipedia has told me. Okay. Well what I believe, if somebody said to me uh, describe magical realism I would guess and this is just a complete guess that it is the harsh reality of the world as we know it so we're sort of familiar with the world mm-hmm. um, is revealed to be actually tinged with the supernatural and it takes a childlike innocent protagonist to reveal it to us yeah, yeah you're not far off uh, you're actually very close Kevin you're very very close okay good I still don't know what those movies are, though. Magical realism, right? So it was a it was a term coined 
in the 1920s in relation to an art and literature movement which emerged in South America in the 1920s, right? So this is where it actually came from. And where in South America? Well, one person I can say who it relates to, an author, he's a Colombian author, and it is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who wrote a very famous book called 100 Years of Solitude and other things. So it uh, it was spawned, it was coined basically uh, off the back of trying to put some sort of categorization on the work that was coming out of this movement from South America back in the 1920s. That kind of makes sense to me in some way, even though Colombia is not Mexico, but Mexico does have a lot of what I would think of as magic realism movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just it's not just Colombia, it's South America in general. Uh, for example, because I was on Wikipedia, right? And I was delighted to see when I when I uh, Wikipedia'd... Can't trust everything you see, or you can't trust everything you read on Wikipedia. Well. You can't, well, you know, I can't I can in regards to this particular list, because uh, when I looked at um, films and television which use magical realism. A film I wrote was on the list. So Song of the Sea is considered, according to Wikipedia, as magical realism. Oh, I really need to see that. You should, yeah. It's it's a, it's a not bad. Um, it's the one about the wolves. That, it? No, it's not the one about the wolves. It's the one about the the, the fairy, fairy scenes. <laughs> oh God, I'm just rehashing the same jokes now over and over again. <laughs> Never mind. Um, okay, right. Would you have counted... Song of the Sea as magic realism. Well, this is the thing. I, not not consciously, like I'm not aware of magic realism. I don't say, oh. You're not conscious when you write. No, well, I'm not. I'm obviously awake when I write. Okay. Uh, um, but I definitely, it, when I look back at a lot of the stories I have written and the stories I like, I enjoy and the stories I like to, to, to write and play with, they, they do include elements of magic realism. Why? I just love magic existing in the ordinary world. That's what I love. Right. But didn't you grow up where there was a fairy fort nearby? Well, there's, yeah, there was lots of fairy stuff going around, going on around our place. Yeah. See that, I grew up in the city. So fairy forts, you know, those were usually bars that people would go into. But um, <laughs> you actually had things that were considered to contain magic. So I'm sh- oh, yeah. I, I wonder whether that permeated your view of the world as a child because you know as kids we're, we're told that the tooth fairy is real we're told that santa claus is real and i think that as i was trying to define magic realism i do think you need that naivety and that childlike innocence to bridge the two worlds between what's mm-hmm. real and what's potential out there and maybe that has influenced your affinity and your affection for this def- definition of a genre yeah, because I still like exist in the world, kind of intrigued by things like fairy forts and uh, you know any sort of cryptozoological story that that exists there. I'm still the one who's like, if you tell me a ghost story, I'm just leaning forward, going, "Oh, it's real! I'm so I'm so there." I want it to be real. I think the world is much more interesting with magic or the promise of some sort of magic or supernatural phenomenon out there. Films are like magic realism, aren't they? Yes. There's a bit of magic when you go to the cinema, all of a sudden you kind of have a little bit of magic in your mundane regular life and you know the act of going to the cinema is like experiencing magical realism. Although I I have to say some of my favorite experiences have been like when a new release gets dropped on Pirate Bay and it's like 1080p and 
you just hit download and it like straight down and you know, you just whack it on your phone and it's, oh, it's nothing beats it. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. The cinema experience cannot replicate watching a pirated film on your phone, Kevin. Yeah. Like- <laughs> in bed. Yeah. It's wrapped up eating Maltesers and <laughs> throwing up. Some You were talking about, you said earlier on that, um, you know, a lot of these magic realism films have like kind of an innocence or a kind of a main protagonist who's innocent and has a naive worldview. And that's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be the case. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You well, also- Yorgos Lanthimos has done very dark uh, magic realism films. Hey, dude, it's like you fucking read my mind because I was going to bring up Yorgos Lanthimos. <laughs> well, I am looking over your shoulders, so, you know, I can't see you know. <laughs> You've often, you've brought up before, not often, but you have brought it up in the, uh, before. You've brought up The Lobster before. Yeah, The Lobster is very good. Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't seen that. Quirky. For this, for this topic. Very quirky. Yeah, because I actually had only seen The Favourite of his films. Yeah, which is and, an absurdist comedy, I suppose you could. Yeah, yeah, it's not magic realism, but his film in between The Lobster and The Favourite is also considered uh, magic realism. And it is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Have you seen that? Um, I haven't. So The Killing of a Sacred Deer is a very unusual film. And it stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keown, and a couple others. It is about a doctor. He's a cardiovascular surgeon, uh, Colin Farrell's character, who presides over a spotless household with his wife and two children. Lurking in the margins of his idyllic suburban existence is Martin, a fatherless teen who insinuates himself into the doctor's life in gradually unsettling ways. It doesn't sound like there's much magical realism there. No. But there is an element of magical realism in this story. And I watched it this past weekend and I found it a gripping film because we have this teenager who seems to be pulling the strings of Colin Farrell's character. And Colin Farrell's character is very much a professional, highly thought of, he has got like perfect, perfect family, but he's very stilted and kind of robotic in his behavior. And whenever Barry Keown's character says jump, Colin Farrell goes, how high? You know, he says, I'll be there. I'll do Are it. Are you being literal now or just you're using not an analogy? literal, but yeah, an <laughs> it's analogy. It's not like beginning to say jump. But like there's a moment like where Barry Keown's character says to Colin Farrell, shows up at his office and said, I'd like for you to come to dinner tonight and stay and watch my favorite movie. We cut to Colin Farrell awkwardly in this this kid's kind of like lower rent uh, accommodation with his mother having dinner and sitting down and they're watching Groundhog Day together. So like, are they watching Groundhog Day together? Yeah, yeah. And halfway through the film, Barry Keown says, "I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed," and he just disappears. Right. And the magic realism is a bit of a plot spoiler, but I'm gonna I'm gonna plot spoil right now because it comes about halfway through the film. Okay, I'm just going to put my fingers in my ears. Okay, there you are. Big fingers. You've got Prince Charles fingers, Kevin. Yeah, it's it's a condition. (laughs) And all of a sudden, one morning, Colin Farrell's son can't walk. He can't use his legs. 
and it progresses to get worse. And, uh, and Colin Farrell t- takes him to the best doctors and the best medical minds and hospital. And they all say there's nothing physiological wrong with him. Colin Farrell is adamant that, oh, we think it's just him making things up. But Barry Keown's character shows up and says, I want to meet you in the cafeteria in 10 minutes. And Colin Farrell immediately leaves and goes and have a, has a conversation with Barry Keown. Come whenever you can. I don't think I'll have time today, as you might imagine. We'll talk some other time. No, today, to the cafeteria. Just for 10 minutes. Don't set me up like last night. I brought you a present. You've given me so many presents, and I've not given you anything. I thought that was rude of me. Close your eyes. Close your eyes, please. It's a Swiss Army knife. I shouldn't have told you that. I just ruined a surprise. I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Martin. That was dumb. Martin, I have to get back downstairs. Okay. I won't keep you much longer, even though you you have been devoting less and less time to me lately. I wanted to say one more thing. I'm really sorry about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. That critical moment we both knew would come someday. Here it is. That time is now. You know what I mean. No, I don't. Listen, Martin, I, I don't have time for this. Okay, I'm going to explain this very quickly so that I don't hold you up. Yes, it's exactly what you think. Just like you killed a member of my family, now you got to kill a member of your family to balance things out. Understand? I can't tell you who to kill, of course. That's for you to decide. But if you don't do it, they will all get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. They will all get sick and die. One, paralysis of the limbs. Two, refusal of food to the point of starvation. Three, bleeding from the eyes. Four, death. One, two, three, four. Don't worry, you won't get sick. You just got to stay calm. That's all. There, I said it as quickly as I could. I hope I haven't kept you too long. Uh, one more thing. I'll be very quick. You only have a few days to decide who to kill. Once stage three kicks in, you remember what stage three is? Is bleeding uh, from the eyes. That's stage three. Once the bleeding happens, it's only a matter of hours before they die. Okay, there. I have nothing more to say unless you've, unless you have any questions. So Barry Keown's character effectively is like a Rumpelstiltskin-like character out of a Grimm's fairy tale. And he has this power and ability and there's no rational explanation for how he has that power. He just has it and he wields it against this Collins Farrell's character and his family. So it's got that kind of Magical realism doesn't have to be explained, but he's using it for dark, nefarious reasons. And it's uh, it's fascinating. Okay, sounds fun. It's really intense. It's really terrifying as well. So you can do horror as magical realism? That's what it's implying. It's implying that you can do, like, you know, a type of... If there's no kind of rational explanation for what's happening, that effectively is magical realism. Can I bring up another magic realism horror film then? Yeah. Amelie. 
Amelie. Yeah, that film was fucking terrifying. <laughs> I was just going to go when you said horror. <laughs> Why is it terrifying, Kevin? Because it's so whimsical. It just brings me out in hives. I don't, I, I wasn't able to go back and watch it. I just, I just found myself unable to go back there. <laughs> Unwilling. Um, it feels like so early 2000s. I just wasn't able to go there. I just wasn't able to go there. Feels like a perfume uh, ad. So is, is Groundhog Day magic realism? You see, Groundhog Day, in my head, Groundhog Day So is also Groundhog Day magic, magic realism? realism? Uh, in my head, Kevin, in my so head. So is Groundhog, Groundhog Day, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very silly now. Yeah. I think Groundhog Day is magic, is magic realism because there's no explanation for the magic. It just, we, it's very much is um, set in a real world. And but they don't do any mechanic. magic in that. They don't explain anything. Which is magical realism. Okay. So magic realism doesn't require an explanation. Not necessarily, no. It doesn't necessarily require... It can have an explanation if you want, but you can just employ it if you want it to be... If you just want to use it randomly, you can, and that's magic realism. As long as whatever whatever device you're using is reflecting back on the real world, then that's kind of the point of magic realism. Big fish? Absolutely. So this is one of the films on my list, actually. Okay, so maybe maybe a good bridge is if people are telling stories about the real world, but the fantasy element is coming into play, but you're still able to recognize that this is grounded in reality. Uh yeah, that's there's some sort of there's definitely has to be one foot in reality. There has to be one foot in reality. That's the essential thing. What was that one? Benjamin Button. That would be magic mm-hmm. realism, wouldn't it? Absolutely, where Benjamin Button himself is going from a wrinkly old man to a small little tiny cute baby. Yeah, that's magic realism as well. There's there's so many, Kevin. There are so many. I could list you out a I can list you out a bunch. Michelle like, Gondry's movies. Yeah. Ted, for instance. Ted's magic realism. What? The teddy bear movie. Yeah, that's magic realism. I've taken Lauren to dinner. You don't think she's going to be expecting something big, do you? It's been four years, Johnny. You and me have been together for 27 years. Where's my ring? Huh? Where's my ring? Put it on my fuzzy finger. Where's my ring? Come on. Knock it off. I'm just saying. God, I remember going to see that one Christmas and it was such an unpleasant cinema experience. Why? Because, do you know when you get the vibe that a comedy is not working and the jokes aren't funny, but there are certain people in the audience that have, feel like they have committed to coming to see this film and will manufacture enthusiasm to justify mm-hmm. them wasting their time seeing it. So they're overly performative about how funny the film is and it just makes it even less funny. <laughs> or maybe they just enjoyed it. And you no, no, it. they couldn't enjoy it. When they're just going like, ha, 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 ha. I think maybe they were just enjoying it and you were just like, you don't, I'm not enjoying this. So obviously everyone here is just faking it. Yeah, it 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 wasn't funny enough to justify the amount of forced laughter. Uh, it's also, I hate when people clap at the end of movies. Oh, they did not clap at the end of Ted. No, but I did. I was glad it was over. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
Hey, listen, one of the things that we kind of have to, one of the things we have to bring up in relation to magic realism and is one that's on the top of many lists and it's not on the top of my list is Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. It's not on the top of your list. Does that mean that you didn't like it as much as others? I honestly feel, and this is me, I rewatched it again at the weekend and I had the exact same experience watching it at the weekend as I did when I first saw it in the cinema, when it first came out in the in the 2000s, which was I appreciated the film. I was I felt I was watching a film that I knew everyone loved mm-hmm. and I was watching it going, I could see kind of why you love this film, but it's just not moving me in the way that it that I, I'm not getting the same amount of, I, I don't have the same amount of love that everyone else seems to have for the film. And I felt odd. Um, no, I feel the same as you. Uh, oh. The craft is is unrivaled. It's a beautiful looking film. So technically you can't really fault it. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's, it's, it feels like a confection. But um, it doesn't feel human. It feels like, it feels so ornate and porcelain that, I don't know, there's no warmth coming from it. I think we know that Guillermo del Toro loves his monsters. He loves his transhumanism. That's another way of putting it. And in this film, I think the beauty and majesty is when we see those strange, unusual, terrifying figures on screen. The, the fawn and the, the the creature in the lair that's underground with the eyes in his hands. And I think that's its triumph, really. But I'm kind of like you, the human characters, the real world characters, the little girl, Ophelia, and her mother, and uh, the Mercedes. I kind of just felt distant from them. I just didn't, I wasn't invested in their story. And I, just, I thought it was a me problem. When everything is designed, overly designed... It, it it doesn't feel like there's anything that you can, that I can um, relate to. It just feels mm. like, I don't know. It's it's a hard one to describe. It's just, maybe it's the period setting and the fact that everything about it feels artificial. Yep. Um, I can, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm just having this awkward. Although on saying that, it still is a, an amazing film to watch. And I, I know that it's on the top of many people's lists and it should be on many people's lists. It's just obviously we've got some problem. The scene I think is great in Pan's Labyrinth is the scene where she does descend into that lair when she's on that mission and she um, she goes into the chamber where this creature is there with who is just, it's got no eyes and it's got, it's, the table is laden with food. Doug, and the cr- isn't that Doug, um, what's his yeah, face? you're right. Jones, Doug Jones. Yeah, Doug Jones. Yeah. Yeah. And the creature picks up eyeballs and puts the eyeballs into the palms of his hand and that's how he holds it. But that's the, very much like Alice up. in Wonderland with the Mad Hatter and the, the Queen of Hearts or 
whatever she she was. It is an amazing scene, and it's a, a, a amazing creature design, and it's beautifully created. of a contrasting pick for you, right? It's a film that came out the exact same year. We mentioned it before. What year was that? 2006, I believe. 2006. Right? Children of Men. It's a, No, it's a film that came up in the podcast before. It's Grabbers. It's a film that came up in the podcast. No, that was no, too early. 2012, yeah. Yeah. It's The Fall. Oh, Yeah. How'd you hurt your arm? My foot. Me too. I'll tell you a story. Close your eyes. There were five of them. The Indian. The ex-slave. An explosive expert. Charles Darwin. And the masked bandit. They had one common enemy. Governor Odious. Is Odious bad man? Oh, yeah. But first, I need a favor. You always tap at the same part when it's very beautiful. Do you want me to finish the story? Be a good bandit. Fall asleep, you gotta go. Why? I want you to see me like this. It's poisonous. I don't like this story. The story was just a trick to get you to do something for me. Wake up. Why are you making everybody die? We're a strange pair, aren't we? Are you trying to save my soul? <laughs> but that's dream logic. So is dream logic magic realism? Well, it can possibly, yeah. It's a bit of a, you, know, you can stretch it. Although to, it's not to, really it's just, dream logic. It's, again, it's somebody telling a story. So it's, it's, it's like the big fish type thing. This is the big fish type. The, the fall is the big fish type thing. And for those of you, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen Pan's Labyrinth, but haven't seen the fall. So the fall came out the same year as Pan's Labyrinth. It is a film by Tarsim Singh. And the, the, the synopsis is, in a hospital on the outskirts of 1920s Los Angeles, an injured stuntman begins to tell a fellow patient, a little girl with a broken arm, a fantastic story about five mythical heroes. 
Thanks to his fractured state of mind and her vivid imagination, the line between fiction and reality start to blur as the tale advances. It stars a little girl who hasn't appeared in anything before or since. Lee Pace is the injured stuntman. And it is fantastic. I like Pan's Labyrinth. I rewatched it this weekend just to compare and contrast to see, is it me? Because I watched The Fall many years ago and thought it was fantastic. And I rewatched it this weekend and I thought it was was equally fantastic. But you said with Pan's Labyrinth, you didn't connect with the human characters. No. And in The Fall, I fell in love with all of the human characters, particularly the little girl. She is so, the performance that um, Tarsum Singh gets out of her is incredible. It's so naturalistic. It feels like he, he's just plucked her out of the street and put her in front of the camera and just let her go. It's sometimes it's hard to actually understand what she's saying because I think she's Romanian. Her origin is Romanian. She's from Eastern Europe originally. And um, she is the beating heart of this film. Not the sister. Bless you. No, what is she is? She doesn't have brothers and sisters. No, she's a nun. Like these nuns out here. And she turned from the mess bandit and she said, May I be frank with you? Of course. Although I've dedicated my life to God and goodness, I secretly love throwing oranges at our priest. Take two turns to the left and go to the bathroom. No, you read my note. What are you talking about? Go to the bathroom. No. How do you know about the priest and the orange? Everybody knows you like throwing oranges at the priest. Even the priest knows. But I didn't find that out from your gibberish message. It's not gibberish. It's also a beautiful looking film. It's so colourful and vibrant and Yeah, and it it's it it benefits from being shot on location. It doesn't feel like a soundstage movie. Where everything feels artificial, even the air feels artificial in some of those, you know, overly designed movies. And this is a this is a overly designed film no question about it but because it's shot on location it it feels real yeah those fantasy stories is uh, they're amazing they're so evocative they 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 draw you in each image just draws you into the fantasy story you feel like you're dreaming you're when you're watching it yeah it's amazing it's just it just whips along and ultimately it's so fucking moving like i was there's a there's a scene in that film which had me in bits. And it's a pivotal moment where the little girl and Lee Pace, who is suicidal, are dueling over the fate of the fictional characters. Oh, yeah. It is devastating because he's wounding himself and he's wounding her in what he's doing to the characters and she's desperately fighting him in, in, in the real world, but also in the fictional world. Get up! Look at him! Look at him! I want you to see how pathetic he really is! I can't get up! Get up, baby! I can't get up! For God's sake, the water's only waist high. I'm not your father! Help me! Look at him! He's a drug addict! Your father is a coward! A useless, good for nothing! Just get up! You can't win! That's because our mass bandit's a coward. Yeah. He never took an oath. A fake, he's a liar and a coward. You're lying. No. 
He had his fingers crossed. I'll joyously kill him. Yes, to die. I don't believe you. He was dying. Don't kill him. I'll bring you more pills if you want. Dad, get up! Don't kill him. There's nothing left for him. His daughter. He wasn't her father either. She loves him. She'll survive. She's young. I don't want you to die. <laughs> Don't kill him. <laughs> Let him live. Let him live. Don't kill him. <laughs> Why did that film not grab people the same way as Pan's Labyrinth? I just do not know. I just do not know why that film is overlooked. I think it probably has to do with Guillermo del Toro being such a um, an entertaining raconteur and um, media guy. I think he's just, he's a character. So he he's a great salesman for his films. Um, and maybe that's it. Because yeah, I've never seen an interview with Tarsem Singh. I've never seen him. No. I've never seen him speak about his films. He hasn't made that many films. He made The Cell, he made Immortals. Which the is Cell, which is also like stunning looking. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say The Fall is up there as one of my favourite magical realism films. I absolutely adore it. It's so special. It's um, a really, really powerful piece of work. And it's, it's, a, it's about the salvation of a character, the salvation of uh, this man who's given up, whose heart has been broken and about how he can move on from heartbreak. And this little girl is there doing her best to save him. And it's just its so powerful. It really is. I was once told by an executive that it is, it is a mistake to write a character who is suicidal because as an audience, we will check out when somebody has given up that we prefer characters who are striving against the odds to succeed and that if they don't care about living anymore and this is their main thrust then it is narratively a dead end uh, I'm not sure whether I agree with that but you know it, it stuck at me I always remember it the difference with this in the fall is that you have a main the main character is the little girl yes of course it's her point of view what about the Wizards of Oz surely that has got to come up that's magical realism as well. Yeah. But um, that's but I wasn't pure going to go... fantasy. In my eyes. But it's, again, it's, it's her, it's, it, it starts off with Dorothy in Kansas. Um, she goes into this fantasy world, but, uh, but the elements in that fantasy world are pointing back to, um, to her real world. Like, you know, all the, the those three characters she meets, the line, the, the, yeah, the they're line, based the on men, people from her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and the, witch the wicked witch is like the, um, the, the neighbor, the wicked neighbor. Yep. It has one of the best shots in movies, like one of the most iconic shots. If ever you see those montages about cinema, the, the ones that will pop up again and again will be like Robert De Niro going, uh, you talking to me, Superman flying with Lois Lane. Uh, and you'll also see Dorothy 
opening the door and stepping into us and going from sepia into full color. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing shot. It's a great and shot. How, a you, trick shot as well. You know well. how they pulled it off? They tricked how they did it, how they did that whole sepia to full color thing. Yeah, one of them was dressed in sepia clothes and it was yeah. standing. And she opens the door and then the camera shifts perspective. And then Judy Garland walks into frame in full colored costume onto a colored set. So that yeah. the, the house was sepia, painted sepia. And, uh, and they, yeah, it was all pulled off in camera. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's so effective. That was back really is. when movies, making movies, was magic realism. Anymore. Did you actually get to see rewatch any films for this? Because I know you're busy. Yeah, I watched. I watched everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, go on. I watched The Life of Pi. I watched Big Fish, Pan's Labyrinth, Amelie, Beast of Southern Wild, <laughs> Birdman, Black Swan, <laughs> Eight and a Half, Border. I watched them all. <laughs> oh, you lie, you lie. Hey, but you actually just brought up a film there that I did watch. So I, you brought up Border, right? I've seen Border. Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen it. I saw it, yeah, two years ago because it won a ton of awards. Yeah, I remember reading uh, an interview with the director at the time who said that he wanted to treat the world as grounded and as uh, relatable to what we recognize, but the central focus of it to be this odd thing, which is these Neanderthal troll-like characters, Mm. but everything else about it the cars, the way it's shot, the lighting, the locations, the, the the dialogue. It could just be a normal drama. Yeah. It's a, it's a Swedish-Danish co-production, but sweet, it was made in Sweden. And for those of you who don't know... It's um, very, very sweet and moving. Yeah, I really liked it. Border is about a border guard with a sixth sense for identifying smugglers encounters the first person she cannot prove is guilty. She is forced to confront terrifying revelations about herself and humankind. And... I loved seeing she she looks like a Neanderthal troll like person, but she's just this regular border guard, and she has this amazing ability to be able to smell people's just to smell the truth, or she can smell when people are up to something. Just by until her she meets a guy who she can't read his mind, and then it it it's the story of I don't know connection, human connection, mm. told with this metaphor, and whether. You are what people think of you, or you are what you think of yourself. Identity comes into it. Yeah, it's um, it's considered an LBGTQ plus film. Yeah, I think it's a it's a metaphor for a lot of things, but it's it is the othering of someone and them finding a sense of peace.
brukade bara köra förbi. Till överraskning. När jag var liten trodde jag att jag var något speciell. Sen blev jag vuxen och fattade att jag är bara människa. Hur och konstig människa med kromosomfel. Det är väl inget väl på dig. Another film I've watched for this is a film which I uh, missed this past year from a filmmaker who I love, and his name is George Miller. And he came up with a film this past year. It's called 3,000 Years of Longing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. Oh, the one about the djinn. Yeah. A djinn is another word for a genie, we'll say. Yeah. So, 3,000 Years of Longing stars Tilda Swinton as a narrativologist, I think she calls herself, and Idris Elba, who is a djinn that she discovers randomly in this bottle. And this djinn has been trapped in that bottle for a long, long time and desperately wants Tilda Swinton's character to use up her wishes because that's his purpose in the story. And she knows narratives so well that she is reluctant to 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 ask any wishes from a djinn because she knows what happens. It's a monkey's paw thing, isn't it? It's there like, you go. Yeah. exactly it. You ask for all the money in the world and you basically get buried alive with it. Yeah. Did you like it? Yes, I did, did you? enjoy it. Yeah. Because I everyone. heard, I, yeah, because I heard it wasn't, like, I heard, I heard it was a strange one. This is a type of film that I can totally see how it doesn't land for a lot of audiences because it's mainly about it, the djinn telling his story of how he ended up in her hands. So it's going back over all of the previous owners of the of the, uh, the people who have conjured him awake, essentially. I actually found it very entertaining. I was swept away by it. Is there a cameo from Larry Hagman? Larry Hagman? Yeah. <laughs> Why Larry Hagman? I Dream of Genie. <gasps> oh, God. Was he actually in I Dream of Genie or was that Bewitched? Oh, no, no. He was was Bewitched. Ah, The band from the 90s. So you say, so you want, so you do, and I want to remember. What? Oh, you're talking about the father. (laughs) He was the fifth member of Bewitched, Larry Agnew. What was that fucking line? I fight like me dad. <laughs> diddly, 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 diddly. Yeah, he was the guy dancing, dancing on the Dancing in Land. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I actually enjoyed uh, 3000 Years of Longing. And the scene I loved in it is a moment where she meets the djinn for the first time because he's oversized. She's in her hotel room and he manifests in her room and he's huge. 
he's like he's actually horizontal he's kind of like crouched up and he's he can't fit into it and he doesn't even understand he's been in the bottle so long he doesn't understand what's going on with all the technology and when she when the tv is on um he's going who's this man in the box (laughs) like you know did you magic him in the box you know and all this it's actually quite entertaining and fun oh There's no story about wishing that is not a cautionary tale. We all have desires, even if they remain hidden from us. But it is your story, and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Oh, how it might end. Hello. Hello. He'll be staying for a while. Um... I have uh, to look out for that one. So I've got good. that to watch and Song of the Sea and <laughs> <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer. I've got lots of homework. You've highlighted something for me as well, like even just through this conversation, that, you know, why use magical realism? Why employ magical realism? And it goes back to what I said at the beginning is that magical realism should be basically like a mirror for the real world or a way for... Uh, for this, the characters or for us as an audience to see the problems of the real world, you know? So like in the case of Wizard of Oz, it's about Dorothy realizing that, look, there's no place like home and you've got all these things inside of you. All the things that you think is wrong with home is actually, it's fine. You have everything. You, you had the power used. all along. Yeah, basically. The metaphors. They're, yeah, basically metaphors. And it gives, it gives through the, the the exercise of going into the realm of the magical realism or magic coming into their world, they unlock something and help fix the world. That's essentially one of the core tenets for me as well. So, another one, <laughs> I'll give you one, is Feel the Dreams, right? Of course! I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. What? Who will come? I didn't say. I hate it when that happens. Me too. So have you ever seen Field of Dreams? I have, yeah, years and years ago. Proper schmaltz. If you build it, they will come. That's not the line though, is it? It's if you build it, he will come. He will come, yeah. Yeah. And everyone says, it's like, beat me up, Scotty. He never said that. Uh, he did not. No. Um, Field of Dreams came out in 1989. It was directed by Phil Alden Robinson. Uh, Very good director. Written by Phil Alden Robinson. Very good writer. He made he made Sneakers. He did. A great movie. And Some of All Fears. Mm-hmm. That's also and there. He's also involved in Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Feel the Dreams came out in 1989. And it's a, it's a story of an Iowa farmer, played by Kevin Costner, who hears a mysterious voice telling him to turn his cornfield into a baseball diamond. He does, but the voice's directions don't stop, even after the spirits of deceased baseball players turn up to play. I loved this film when I saw it way back in the day, and so I hadn't seen this in many in many decades, two, 
factory, probably. Is A League of Their Own magic realism? Where's, I don't remember any moment of magic realism in A League of Their Own. There's girls playing baseball. <laughs> oh, you sexist pig. <laughs> you sexist, sexist pig. I'll say anything for uh, a joke, me. <laughs> so I love cancel. A League of Their Own, actually. It's a great film. It is great. Yeah. Um, I rewatched uh, Field of Dreams this past week as well, these past few weeks. And it is, the smalls is thick. The smalls is thick and... What is smalls? Uh, I've never heard of it called smalls. What do you call it? Schmaltz. I call it schmaltz because my my, schmaltz. my schmaltz. speech impediment schmaltzy. Get around it, um. But there is a charm to it, and we talk about uh, what I was talking about is like how magic realism kind of holds up a mirror to the problems of the real world, and in that story, it's very much about Kevin Costner not having any closure with his dad, having a very uh, after having a very alienated relationship with his father growing up, which is very much the front of the story. This whole thing ends up leading to him finally having a bit of closure with his Playing dad. Playing catch with his dad. And my God, it is, <laughs> it is, it's hard not to, it's hard to, there's a little bit of moment where you go, oh, this is kind of, maybe it's a little bit, it does, it, maybe it's going over, over the top a little bit, but still it is quite sweet. It is quite sweet. And um, see, sweetness, I think is what uh, alienates me from these films. I'm a big, open-hearted, soppy fucker. I will cry my eyes out at sports movies all the time. But whenever mm. it gets so sentimental and, and whimsical, yeah, I don't know, I tend to just close up a bit, a little bit and uh, I, I get the ick. That sounds like a you problem. So beautiful here. For me... Well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa?
Guess what, Kevin? What will? I have another one to talk about. <laughs> My God, we've gone from jar to gin and we're still not done. <laughs> we're not done. A couple more. Because I did a lot of homework for this. We haven't recorded in so long. I was, I was kind of yeah, like... Yeah, it's been over two weeks. Yeah, I was... Well, we haven't... Since I got this topic, I got this topic ages ago. So I've been kind of watching films all the way and kind of catching up on things I hadn't seen. And well, it's good me. because I don't even have a pick, to be honest. Another one I watched, Kevin. Is one that maybe you watched, maybe you didn't watch from the late I 90s. didn't watch it. It's called Pleasantville. Have you watched that one? Pleasantville is brilliant. Yes. <laughs> There's a place where life is simple. People are perfect. And everything is black and white. Honey, I'm home. It's a place that's as far from reality as we can imagine. How about some marshmallow rice squares? Those are swell. But maybe it's a lot closer than we think. What happened? I'm not sure. (gasps) Look at me. I'm pasty. Morning, kids. Better get a move on or you'll be late for school. I put blueberries in them just the way you like. We're in Pleasantville? No! We're supposed to be in school. We're supposed to be in color? What's all the commotion? Who's that? I didn't think you'd want to come here until we'd been pinned for a little while. You can pin me anytime you want to. Or maybe I should just pin you. She's a fine young woman. She would never do anything for us to be concerned about. This is my favorite era of uh, Hollywood movies. It's when they were doing sort of, what would you call them? They're like prestige films, but they have... a Hollywood studio mainstream commercial appeal to them, like mm-hmm. the Truman Show and like Pleasantville and and Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. They were movies that had great ideas, great originality to them, and they were given tons of money. And it, it was just that lovely sort of period where big ideas were getting big budgets. Absolutely. And this is one of them. And it's written and directed by Gary Ross, who went on to financial success when he made the first Hunger Games movie. It stars Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon, William H. Macy, Joel Allen, Joel Allen, Jeff, Jeff Daniels, TJ Walsh, big cast, yeah. came out in 1998. And it is about a teenager, Tobey Maguire's character, and his popular twin sister, played by Reese Witherspoon, they get sucked into the black and white world of the 1950s TV sitcom called Pleasantville and find a world where everything is peachy keen all the time. A repressed world. Very much so. But when the when uh, Reese Witherspoon's character's modern attitude disrupts Pleasantville's peaceful but boring routine, she literally brings colour into this life. And it is wonderful to watch as colour, colour, it disrupts this world. When her, her lips start to bloom and she starts getting, you know, red lips. And she's actually one of the last characters to actually become colorized. But it's she, very it's sweet. But that's the good kind of sweet. Yeah. Where it feels it, intellectual. This is, this is the thing. There's a it's a very fine balance. You can you can you can fall on the side of saccharine of being too sweet, or you can err on the side of actually telling a great story and, and, and having magic uh, and the magic realism elements being incredibly powerful because it's a story that reflects on the world where we see this perfectly 
this perfectly routine, mundane, mundane conservative world is all of a sudden disrupted by new ideas and new concepts. And once you are corrupted, you can't go back. But it's what, what they don't. Anyone who is corrupted doesn't want to go back because they 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 have been awakened. And uh, it's, it's like an inversion on invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, yeah. And like it's it's again it's like they they literally say, oh, you're colors. You know, there's times when they go, you colors, which is so the, the racial kind of like uh, connotation, overtones, yeah. con- the racial co- the, yeah, connotation and overtones is is on the nose, but it works in the context of this story. There's an amazing moment where Jeff Daniels, he's an artist and he, <laughs> he runs, he runs the local cafeteria and the diner. And all of a sudden his artistic talent is awakened and he paints a picture of Joan Allen's character. And she's in the news, and, yeah. and and he does it as a mural, and everyone in the town is shocked. Yeah, it's like Titanic, except she spread eagle. <laughs> it's very tastefully done, Kevin. No, it is. I loved Pleasantville. I, I did as well. It. I haven't seen it in about twenty years, but I did love it. It holds uh, up, man. It yeah. holds up. It's really, really, really good. Oh. Wait. No, no, I, I've got to right. go. Let me see. There's a moment in a musical, rock musical biopic that I really liked of um, magical realism. And it's from the recent film Rocket Man, the Elton John movie. Ugh. Did you watch it? I'm not going to watch that. Look look at you. Look at you judging your book by its cover. Yeah, Ugh. I'm not going to. I'm not. Ugh. I'm not interested. Ugh, 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 films are <laughs> fucking shite. Ugh, why would I watch That's a our... film? <laughs> why would I watch a film recommended I by my co-host? Just, it looked, <laughs> that exactly is why I didn't want to watch it. It just looked whimsical. It's nice. It's actually, I, I, I thought it was great. I actually, I actually really enjoyed it. Where uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Did oh, I did, yeah. Where yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody was was a triumphant uh, financial success and got awards and all that sort of stuff. The best and musical biopic film is The Commitments. Yeah, but it's not a biopic. It is. They're a real band. Are they? Well, they're a real band. Post after the, the fact. <laughs> after the fact, yeah. yeah. The kind that was of, the amazing thing. It's, it's that, almost a documentary. Yeah, they break up at the end of the film, but you <laughs> yeah. know, they get back together in, in real, tour. In real life. Yeah. Um, hey, there's a moment in Rocket Man that I do love, and it's a moment where Elton John is 
plays, makes his first live performance in Los Angeles in this kind of like make it or break it a location called the Troubadour. And the moment is when he starts to play Crocodile Rock and he's nervous as hell. But when he starts to play it, when the audience starts to love it, he starts to float. And I know you hate it. I know you hate it. I don't hate it. I just find it a bit much. worked. Cam the whole film has this energy about it that I enjoyed. And uh, I love that moment of him floating and the audience floating. And it's like, he's taken off, baby. He's well, he's singing off. the crocodile rock. Yeah, he's ta- the rocket man has taken off. And what I they it. should have is having been eaten by crocodiles. Do they include the moment in it where he's singing Candle in the Wind at uh, Diana's funeral? They did, actually, yeah. No, they did. They did not. They did not. All oh, right. And well, he gets I, up and he starts dancing with Diana, uh, like her and John Travolta, and they're in the clothes. Diana's corpse, her ghost came, comes out of the coffin. And they have this moment. So that's a moment of magical realism where John, John Elton John is dancing with Diana. And yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. Eight and a half. We got to mention eight and a half. Fellini, you know, we're film scholars yes. on this podcast. Uh, Dream Logic, really intoxicating film. One to watch. Uh, get it, don't you? But I thought I'd just throw that in there. Kevin, we should wrap up this episode because we've been talking for a long time about random films and touching on all this sort of stuff. There's a load of films that I have also watched that I just don't have the time. That's fine. You can send them an email. If anybody wants to know what other films Will's watched, email us. Go on to the Best Bits Podcast uh, dot com and go onto the contact page and just write a little note saying, Will, what else have you seen? And Will will send you <laughs> a list that will be about 300 films long. That's the amount of work I put into an actual, into, into my research and homework for the bloody show. Kevin, you said you, you said to me earlier, Mm-hmm. That you had two films and you're flip-flopping between t- your two films. Yeah. What were you thinking? Well, the one that I want to mention, 
I can't really th- think of a specific scene which sums up the concept of magic realism because the whole film is magic realism. Right, okay. But the film is in my it's sometimes in it's sometimes in my top five of all time. Um but it's always in my top ten. Right. And it's a perfect film. It's a film I didn't really like the first time I saw it when I was a young teenager. I think I was fourteen or fifteen when I saw it on video. I didn't I thought it was like half a film. It was irritating. It was like, oh my God, they're not doing it again, are they? What this and is. then as the years went on and my my emotional intelligence broadened slightly slightly and i um i realized how perfectly constructed the film was but also how philosophical it was and how deep it was uh i became to really love the film and it's groundhog day hey yeah A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Phil? Mad! Mad Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Bing! But Phil's about to find out... He's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck... In Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Bill? Ned Ryerson? Bang! Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? At first, he was a little anxious. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. But now, we could do whatever we want. He's discovering the possibilities. Don't you worry about cholesterol? Why? And living life Mm. like there's no tomorrow. Phil Connors! Ned! Because... There isn't. I am an immortal. I have been stabbed, shot, burned, frozen, electrocuted. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. He's out of his gourd. But to get what his heart wants most... What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? ...means living this day over again, (laughs) till he gets it right. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. (laughs) What a waste of time. I study 19th century French poetry. La fille qui You speak French. We. Oui. Bill Murray. Andy McDowell. To the groundhog. I always drink to world peace. Well, what should we drink to? I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. He might be okay. Life has a funny way of repeating itself. What did you do today? Oh, same old, same old. And I guess maybe the scene that I like the most in that movie is when he cannot save the homeless man. Mm -hmm. And he realizes that 
all of his problems pale in comparison because there's always somebody who's worse off than you. And every day that he relives, that old man that everybody's overlooked dies. And he tries to save him and he can't save him. And he has to come to the realization that there's a natural order to things, I suppose. And that pain and sadness and loss is part of life. And that he can't reach true fulfillment until he accepts that. And it's one of the most touching moments in a knockabout comedy. And uh, I think I'm going to go with that. Are you the one who brought the old man in? Mm Mm-hmm. How's he? Well, he just passed away. What did he die of? He was just old. It was just his time. I want to see his chart. Excuse me. Uh, sir. Sir, you can't come in here. Sir, this is a restricted area. Where's the chart? Sometimes people just die. Not today. It's hard down there at the bottom. Here you go. Thank you. Come on, dear. Come on, Pop. Come on, Pop. Come on, come on. Come on, breathe. Breathe, Pop. Breathe, Pop. Excellent choice. An excellent film. My backup was going to be Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm-hmm. And that movie is a lot of movie. And I do feel like there's about 20 minutes of that film that if you took it out, it would feel more digestible because it can hammer you over the head. But I was really moved to tears towards the end of that film. And uh, it really takes a turn. I remember being in the cinema and you could hear a pin drop when it cut to the two rocks yeah, and they were just discussing the meaning of existence and it was just, just be a rock just stop trying to be everything for everyone and just be what you are, just be a rock and it's subtitled and it's beautiful, it's so mm. beautiful and earnest and heartfelt and, and towards the end of that film I just found it so deeply moving and everything all of the the, the madness that went on when she's resisting and when she's fighting and when she's trying to control the narrative, when she submits to it and realizes that it's all just about connecting to the person in her life that means the most to her, which is her daughter. Mm. Um, and that, that was the big enemy in her life. And all her daughter wanted was to be seen and to be heard and to be acknowledged. You know why I actually built the bagel? It wasn't to destroy everything. It was to destroy myself. 
I wanted to see if I went in, could I finally escape? Like actually die. At least this way. I don't have to do it alone. And yeah, I guess in those two films, Groundhog Day and Everything Everywhere All at Once, the sentiment is what makes that movie matter. And um, I guess when you're taking metaphor and you're trying to explain big existential questions like that, magic realism really works. And so those two were the two that I was grappling with, but which one could I sort of get through without getting choked up? And my God, Everything Everywhere All at Once does exactly what magical realism should do, which is it. It holds that magical mirror up to a very real world problem. And it's the problem of this family and helps them fix their their conflicted and fractured relationships. It's a really amazing little film. Yeah, I I would find it difficult to pick between both of those as well. Well There you go. Right. Well, I'll uh, talk to you soon. My um, pick for this topic, Kevin. Let me go. I've got a I've got a meeting (sighs) there with a... I actually don't. I got no meetings. Spielberg. Uh, so uh, yeah, my pick is something that was quite easy for me to decide upon because it's an opportunity for me to finally see. choose one of my favorite films. Saga to see ever, and it is from Saga to see. No, it's a wonderful life. Well, who are you? told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Sandimental hogwash. I wish I had a million dollars. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Absolutely perfect film in my eyes. I adore it. I love the use of magical realism in this because it is about George Bailey, the guy who has sacrificed all these hopes and dreams to do the honest to God thing and stay at home and help out his family and help out the business and help out, you know, just basically sacrificed everything. And finally, when things go to shit and everything goes wrong, he feels like life would have been better if he had never existed. And Clarence, the angel in training, shows him the world if he had never existed. And it is horrific. It reflects back to George that, listen, your life, even though it doesn't feel like you have added much to this world, but my God, one life can create such positivity in the world and it's precious and what you've added to this community is absolutely precious. And I just love the moment where he comes back to reality. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. 
I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas. And George goes back through Bedford Falls and he sees his old banger of a truck is crashed against a tree. All of the things that a few hours before felt like the end of his world now are welcome totems welcoming him back to the real world. Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building alone! Hey! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Happy New Year to you! In jail! Go on home, they're waiting for you! (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Even though things things seem terrible, it doesn't matter because I'm alive and we have each other and we'll figure it out. Life might be terrible, but it is all about perspective. I'll get it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. Reporters, are, where's Mary? Mary. Oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house. Mary. 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 Have you seen my wife? Mary. 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 Kids! Pete! Kids, Janie! Janie, Tommy! Oh, I could eat you up. Where's your mother? And that is the beauty of the magical realism of the of its wonderful life, where George gets the opportunity to see the world if he never existed, and how precious and important his life has been to making the world a better place and uh, I think that's amazing and I think it's wonderful and it highlights to me one of the most important things about magical realism which is you need to have one you need to have the light and the dark but also it needs to be a mirror being held up to the real world and uh, I think it's just a beautiful beautiful film and I love it so much so that's my pick Kevin What's that wonderful line that Keanu Reeves said? Probably the best thing he's ever done in his life. And he's a great movie star. Well, he said on a chat show, um, uh, Stephen Colbert asked him, what happens when we die? Mm. And Keanu, have you seen it? Yeah. And Keanu Reeves takes a a moment and he says, "Um, I don't know but I know that the people who love us will miss us. Yeah, it's very sweet. It is. And it's like, that's that's all that really matters, isn't it? And uh, that's the lesson I think that that George Bailey learns in that is that he matters. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. 
But no, it's it's very what you're saying is very very true, and I think what I what I was saying was that listen, magic realism, I think works when it is mixed with it's like a mirror, a reflection of the light in the dark. When you have both sides, both contours, if it's all light and if it's all squeezed, then it just it doesn't work. Yeah, but I feel you need to have that dark element in there for it to truly work and be effective. And I powerful. agree. I'm the dark element of the podcast. <laughs> That's true. You are. You are. Act, as I look you look at you now, you are shadowed in darkness. You have. You've thrown on your dark lord robe, and I'm here with my white lord robe. Look at us. <laughs> We're here in the cold, recording in the cold, and Kevin's wearing a dark blanket, and I've got a a light coloured blanket. Hey, we've done it, Kevin. That's the we end have. Of the episode. Um, I really enjoyed that and I think I have a better grasp on what magic realism is and also I think I have a new appreciation for what magic realism can achieve in movies well I am glad I am too now we never have to talk about these films ever again (laughs) well I'm just glad I get to park It's a Wonderful Life I get to talk about it I got to talk about it at one stage I feel like you've talked about it several times Ah, it's never come up as a pick ever chase scenes it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Best fight scene, best sex scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think you actually did bring it up in one of those things. There is one. Best I kiss. love you. Best I love you, I think. Yeah, it, came up. it did. You're <clears> right. <throat> it did come up in that. So I'm just this is me now parking it. I've discussed it's a wonderful life. I'm putting it away now. Um come here. We have to roll the wheel. And I have to roll it for you. Or spin the wheel. I have to spin the wheel. Yeah, we're not rolling that anywhere. Rolling spin it. it. Well, like, well, since Pierce got his hands in, there's a lot of rolling going on. Ever right. since he got mauled by that badger, he's not been the same. He really, yeah, he really hasn't been. He's got, he's got, you know, he he can't drink water. Do you ever see him try and drink a glass of water? Yeah, he uses just, both hands. Yeah, he uses both hands, and then when it goes into his own, he starts gagging like he's drowning. Yeah, he's rabies, crazy. rabies. <laughs> it's fucking rabies. Hydro hydrophobia. Yeah, it's mags. Ah, well, <sighs> we got the best out of him. At least he had three episodes of four. How many episodes has he done? Five episodes? He's done about eight episodes. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's we've got, he's earned his key. Let me spin it. Okay. I'm going to spin the wheel. Okay. And Kevin, your topic for next time is best plot twist. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I'm already thinking of... You goddamn apes, you blew it up. I, you know what I know what you're thinking? You're thinking of what sort of elaborate sketch and skit you can do. That's what you're thinking. You're, you're, you're forgetting about research. You're just thinking, how, okay, I'm going to script this. <laughs> you know how where my... Script, how many characters are we going to have? How many new characters are we going to create? <laughs> is, is Dead Man going to show up again? Huh, hang on a second. <laughs> because I'm so fucking creatively stunted. <laughs> Subscribe resubscribe tell your friends about the podcast please please uh, we also have a patreon we do loads over there we've got as many patreon episodes out as we do main shows yeah. um, check out our website having those around all right see ya yes do what kevin said bye the 
Best Bits podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. Our audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon member where you'll receive bonus shows where we talk about recent releases and what we're up to. And you'll receive access to our Discord chat room where we hang out with our listeners. Search the Best Bits podcast on Patreon or click on the link in the show notes. Will I feel ill, you know? That's not a tag. Just take something from this and put it at the end. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Will and the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't you throw what? <laughs> Oh my god. I I did a whole Irish theme. The best place I can Van Willem talking deviantly. <laughs> okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing. Because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because <laughs> it's bound to be funny. In his eyes, so yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then of yeah. course I was delighted with that and people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwood and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. I'm a psycho yeah, That's exactly so. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kev Van Willem about the telly and the latest film. Talking shite the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I do, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, <laughs> I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm raring to go. I saw Madam Webb. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster oh, very recently. It went, "There's a Madam Web film," and I'm, what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent 
Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought... I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films where I feel like yes. there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels It's artificial, aesthetic. wafer thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction. You know protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh yeah. wow, I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay. On the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it was—it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went to the Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but they've almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. <laughs> he was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Kathy was pushing back and... I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Catty here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I thought... <laughs> <laughs> but you know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I liked Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector 
is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. (laughs) 